Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. We begin our time in this book. Our Bible automatically opens to Isaiah. And in fact, I just struggle finding anything in the New Testament. Uh, but there it is. There's Galatians. Right after 2 Corinthians where it's always been. Um, so what we're going to, today's sermon is going to be kind of an intro to this book. Um, and an intro to the ideas in this book. So as we come to, we're going to be looking at the first five verses of chapter one of Galatians. As we come to it, let's go to the Lord again in prayer and ask for his help with it. Oh Lord Jesus, as we come to your word here in the book of Galatians, it is similar to that that we found in Isaiah also because they are all your words written thousands of years apart, but they are all yours. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us, because whether they were written in the 6th century B.C. or the 1st century A.D., we struggle with them. We want to replace them with our own words. We want to have our own understanding and not yours. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take your words, the ones that we read today, and that you would... Use them to convict us of our sin, to lead us to your truth. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. As I read this, and again, one of the themes of this is Paul writing this letter to these people concerning an issue that's going on in the church. It made me think of authority figures in general, which made me think of a particular internet meme that's been around for a while, and I'll use, I'll talk about it without using the name that's given to the meme, because I'm sad that this particular name has gone into disrepute. But it's about a typical type of individual who's impatient and entitled and who goes into a restaurant or a retail store and doesn't get their way, so they typically will demand to speak to the manager. Because the managers, you know, are always going to honor their rude behavior and immaturity and give them what they want. And so it makes for some really funny stuff sometimes because we always like to see it when someone with the authority comes out and actually puts that person in their place. You know, actually deals with them the way they should be dealt with. And we like to laugh at that too because it makes us forget about the times that we're entitled and immature and need to be put in our place. And that's exactly what's going on in the book of Galatians. You have an immature group of Christians who have drawn, a, who have drawn the attention of the real authority figure here, and that's the Apostle Paul. Paul planted these churches in Galatia, and now he writes to them wondering what has gone wrong since he planted them and now since he's writing this letter. Like all groups, Christianity had its factions, and one of these factions had certain beliefs that were incompatible with the gospel message handed down from the very Son of God himself, Jesus Christ. So one who was called and sent directly from Jesus would now have to go and deal with this controversy directly. As we get into the book of Galatians, there will be several ideas that will come across, but the main theme of the book is Paul bringing the one true gospel to the saints for all time. And simultaneously then countering the false gospel of legalism, which is still alive and 
very well, unfortunately, today in our churches. In order to get a feel for what we're getting into, we're going to, again, we have to know the overall context of the book of Galatians, and so we're going to do that with three points today. First, looking at the man, Paul, his audience, the Galatians, and then the message that he is going to preach, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with that, look with me at the text, Galatians chapter 1. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. We'll be looking at Galatians 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So typically during this time, I would introduce the textual context because, you know, it's, it's good to know context. But since we here are in verse 1-1, it's kind of hard to have a textual context. And so we'll look at a historical context instead because that's very important for the book of Galatians. Galatians was written after the first Jerusalem council. And if you remember when we studied the book of Acts, it's been a little while now, but you can read about that first Jerusalem council. And it's in Acts chapter 15. I encourage you to do that during your own time. And remember, during that first Jerusalem council, there was really only one main concern, and that was the requirements for a believer in Christ. What were the requirements to be saved? There was a group of people that was telling Gentile converts that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Paul and Barnabas, who came to the council with their concerns, they brought their concerns to the council and for them to come down with a ruling against this false doctrine, which is that's exactly what the council of Jerusalem did. And that ruling went out to all of the churches via letter for them to follow because the Jerusalem council would have been made up of elders in the church. Not only that, but the Jerusalem Council included the Apostle Peter and perhaps some of the other apostles as well. And so the letter that was sent to these churches, hey, you need to do this, this is the right answer concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't need to be circumcised, this letter was carried with the authority of the office of the apostle and the office of those elders. And it was puzzling for Paul, as to why he was still hearing about the churches in Galatia struggling with this doctrine. Not only that, they were listening to those who preached this false doctrine. So as we introduce the book today, that's the backdrop. This is one that strikes at the very vitals of the Christian faith. This isn't just a side issue. The nature and the truth of the gospel aren't issues that we can choose to kind of be loose on. This is very important. They're at the heart of our faith, and it's why it's crucial for Christians to not only understand the gospel, but to guard against false teachings and false teachers. So with that, brings me to the first point, the man, 
Paul, verse 1. Paul, and apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So Paul introduces himself here at the beginning of the book, as was the normal custom of that time, for, to, for him just to introduce himself right at the beginning, giving his name, not something that we would do with letters in our culture, but it's the way that they wrote them then. And notice, he gives them, the churches of Galatia and us, his title, which is kind of a fill in the blank to the question, why should I listen to you? Paul and Apostle Oh. I should listen to you. The term apostle is very important here. It's one that has been misused very much over the years and even still today. So it's important for us to understand it. The term apostle is a really simple one in the original language. It means one who is sent. And you've probably heard ten different pastors say that over the years. There is an aspect to this that many people miss, however, because if you read the New Testament... And even the Old Testament, you read about lots of people who were sent. Messengers, so to speak. We could also grab a hold of this title for ourselves, too, right? Those who have been sent. And I've heard lots of people do that. They'll say they've been sent by their church, so they're now an apostle. This is not the intent at all of this word here. Words have meaning in their immediate context, and they're that their general definition doesn't quite capture. And this is a perfect example of that. When we see this word, apostle, used in the New Testament, we see it attached to a particular group of people who were given a particular task for a particular time. The term of apostle is given to those men who were personally sent by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, meaning Jesus came and spoke to them personally. And not just, in, there weren't just any kind of messenger. Jesus sent out multitudes during his ministry. Remember, if you read through the Gospels, you read about Jesus sending out 70 and sending out this many and that many. But not all were apostles. The apostles were indeed sent directly by Jesus, but they were also given a special kind of authority over the church. They were sent as emissaries of God with the very words of God, on the mission of God, and with his authority. So when Paul introduces himself as Paul, an apostle, that carries weight to it. A lot of weight. There aren't very many apostles. Very few, in fact. He wasn't simply offering sound advice to a struggling church. He was issuing this church commands. Because he had the authority to do so. He divided truth from falsehood as only someone in his office could do. And just in case they balked at his credentials, we see a short defense of his credentials here. This book sometimes takes a bit of an adversarial tone. And it starts here in just the first few words. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Notice a few things here. Paul is putting Jesus and the Father on the same level as ones who sent him because they had equal authority. This is a nod, of course, to the deity of Christ. We read from that in our Heidelberg Catechism today as well. If there was any doubt 
we are reminded that Jesus was the risen Lord, not a dead man in a Jewish tomb, but the very Son of God, the right hand of the Father. Both he and the Father sending Paul forth with this important task. Important things for us here, namely, for us in the church today, and we understand this in our church, but it's just a good reminder, particularly as we wade through our context, our cultural context, particularly our church culture, there are no more apostles. I'll repeat that. There are no more apostles. I don't care what someone calls themselves. I don't care what kind of fancy ceremony they went through in order to become an apostle. I don't even care if they wear a fancy hat. It doesn't make them an apostle. The office of apostle is closed. All of those men are dead and they're with their Lord now. But that doesn't mean that the commands of this office went away. It doesn't mean that the authority of this office went away when Paul was executed in Rome. These commands still stand for us today. And we honor them as such. We honor Paul's commands as words from God. Which brings another important idea here that we'll get into. Because you hear a lot of stuff out there today about whether or not Paul and Jesus agree with one another. When you read that, just just click off of it. Don't even get into it. It's, it's dumb. People will say, well, there's a gospel of Jesus and then there's a gospel of Paul. Which one should we believe? They're trying to be cute. They're not. It's dumb. Because Paul was sent, read here the words that are there, who was he sent by? Jesus. Paul's words and Jesus' words are no different. They're the same. The words of Paul were the words of Jesus. Paul's words here in the book of Galatians are the word of God. Jesus is God. And when we can't make these words here in Paul's work, work with the rest of the New Testament, it doesn't show a problem with the New Testament. It shows a problem with us. It shows a problem with our own deficiencies, our own weaknesses. Scripture is perfect. We are not. And for Paul, this would be important. Because many people would question his authority to teach them anything. And we'll see that going forward through the rest of this book. That brings us to the next point, his audience. Verse 2. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Paul's letter was to the churches of Galatia. A few things about the churches of Galatia. Galatia was not a city, but it was a region. And in this region, Paul started several churches. In Acts 14, actually, you can read about Paul's trip through the region of Galatia as he went to places like Lystra and Derbe and Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium. All of these are cities that were found in the region of Galatia. The region is what is today called southern Turkey, uh, but we, back then it was called Asia Minor. And if you look at Paul's first missionary journey, you just look it up, you can find a nice little picture of the arrows and things, and you see him going through all of these churches here in this region of Galatia. And there is much ado about the origin of the people and that name Galatia, but suffice it to say, 
all of those are beyond the scope of the things that we're learning here today. It's important for us to understand, is the church here, that it was a group of the, the church here in Galatia, they were a group of people who were influenced by another group called the Judaizers. As Paul was traveling to these cities, he would go to the synagogues first. If you read through the book of Acts, you see just that. He goes, the first place he would go was the synagogue, and he would reason with the people in the synagogue, which was mostly Jewish people. And so his converts would either be Jewish people or Gentiles who were keeping Jewish traditions. Either way, the people were steeped in the traditions of the Jewish ways of worship, and now what Paul is preaching is that they're hearing Christ, Christ is the fulfillment of those signs in the Old Testament, and now that there is there's a new covenant with new covenant signs. And so Christians there were learning a new way to worship the Lord. Right? There, there's no longer circumcision was no longer required. Now there's this thing called baptism, for instance. Well, there was another group of Christians called Judaizers, and they insisted that the converts must be circumcised in order to be saved. Without circumcision, their salvation was a kind of, how you say, second-class salvation, or worse, no salvation at all. And it might surprise you to hear that the Judaizers were Christians. Because you know true Christians don't come up with strange standards for others to meet. We would never do anything like that. Right? And then even in saying that, we'd like to remove ourselves from that and then just point point at others. Right? Just to point finger because there's only other Christians that are doing that. Surely we're not doing that even here in this church. Congrats if you are no longer a Judaizer, at least in part, because the rest of us, it is a constant struggle not to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are groups who insist that the sign of the covenant must be applied in order for that person to be saved. That heresy is nothing new. It's pretty, pretty common. It's common even in this town. Yet for the rest of us, we just come up with some other sacrament that represents our own idols. I'll give you some examples, and they won't spare us, because for Reformed Christians, it's a lot of specific things, like singing certain kinds of songs. You mean that church doesn't sing all psalms? Hmm. That's not good. Or reading certain kinds of books. You're a pastor and you haven't read the Puritans? Shame. For churches, it can be certain kinds of programs, or the absence of any programs at all. For parents, it can be kids that have been catechized completely and are able to, on the spot, name by number, give the catechism question and answer. Or for parents who only drink unpasteurized milk, or whatever little thing that we come up for ourselves. I've heard lots of things in my 20 years of ministry. Some of these things may indeed sound silly, but any standard that we put on others in addition to the gospel of Jesus Christ, is silly, by definition. Jesus requires that we call upon his name to be saved, that we believe that he is Lord, and that he has been risen from the dead. Anything in addition to that, brothers and sisters in Christ, is a false gospel. Anything 
And for those of us who on our best days are just recovering Judaizers, this book is for us. And the message is loud and clear. That brings me to the third point, the message. Look with me at verses 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, our God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So notice, just as above the Father and the Son are mentioned together, there's no separation there as far as their authority and their message is concerned. Both the Father and the Son have appointed Paul to be their messenger, and Paul brings forth his message from them. As we continue into this book, we're going to see the Spirit's contribution as well, reminding us that salvation is indeed a Trinitarian effort, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to bring about the redemption of their covenant people. And he reminds us of the work of Jesus. What is the gospel? The work of Jesus who gave himself for our sins. There's an exchange here, a substitution. He gave himself for our sins. And in return, what are we given? We don't see that here. We see that in Paul's other writings, many places. We have his righteousness. That substitution, he gave himself for our sins, is at the heart of this whole thing, because if Jesus did not create a situation where he would be taking our sins from us, we would still be in debt to him. He didn't simply create a possibility for our salvation either. This is important. We only add, we can just add to it then. Whatever we need to add to it, then we can be saved. That's not what's going on. Because don't forget, without Him, we are nothing. He came to us for this exchange. He initiated it. He did the work. He continues to uphold it even to this day. The only thing that we add to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And the exchange has a stated purpose. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God the Father. He's not talking about 2022. He's speaking about the fact that as Christians we now see the world much differently than we did. For Paul, if you read his story, In Acts chapter 9 and 10, the scales literally were removed from his eyes so that he could finally see. For us, the light of Christ shines into our lives. And through it, we now see the world as it is. It's a dark and destitute place. And so he came, he came, he died for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Not only pointing forward to the time that we would go home with him, but even as we live today, we have been delivered from this dark and destitute place. Church isn't perfect. Since Paul's day, there have been groups who have taught a false gospel, and it's no different today, brothers and sisters in Christ. We have all sorts of gospel teachings out there today, and we have to be careful 
that we don't just simply point fingers and note all the things that are around because they take many different forms. We have teachers who want you to buy them a new jet and they've made the gospel about money. We have teachers who want you to come and have coffee and donuts while they preach a sermon that doesn't mention sin or Jesus because they've made the gospel about feeling good. We have teachers who want you to take good notes and read good books and have good doctrine because they've made the gospel about being right. And the gospel is none of those things. Those things aren't bad. Donuts aren't bad. Jets aren't bad. Taking notes is not bad. All of those are good things. None of those things are the gospel. When we make the gospel anything but the one true gospel of Jesus Christ, that he became the, that he became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, we share in the same error as the Judaizers. The gospel is simple. Whoever calls upon the name of Jesus Christ can be saved. And if we add anything to that, we come face to face with the apostle here. He's speaking right to us. We need to understand that. The time is coming soon, brothers and sisters in Christ, when it's going to be harder and harder to find that one true gospel in any church. So it's important for us to cling to the truth of God's Word, to be preachers of God's Word, to be readers and hearers of God's Word. In conclusion, let us be a people who see ourselves first and foremost as recovering Judaizers on our best days and who never stop needing Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And let us preach that one true gospel to a lost world. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we on our best days are ones who add to the gospel. Lord, we pray that you'd help us. It's not hard. It's not difficult to understand intellectually. It's not difficult to understand from any vantage point. But yet, we still want to add to it in order to propel ourselves, in order to push others down for some motivation other than glorifying you and you alone. And so, Lord, we pray for ourselves individually, but also we pray as a church that we would be a church that always upholds the one true gospel of Jesus Christ that there would be no other gospel preached from this pulpit, that there would be no other gospel shared from the lips of the people here. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be preachers of that gospel to a lost world, namely to the lost here in this county, in this city, that they would come to know you and that they would glorify your name in all the earth. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.